Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org. I'm excited tonight to just bring another perspective into this, this revival, this rise up and rebuild. Uh, I am going to be in Nehemiah tonight. I'm excited about Nehemiah. I absolutely love the story of Nehemiah. I told, I told my wife yesterday, I said, Nehemiah was a man among boys. Uh, he was just something else. So I'm excited to get in this. I usually, anytime I'm going to minister, I usually have my, I was about to say my nine-year-old son, but he turned 10 yesterday. I usually always have my son Stephen pray for me every time I'm going to minister. And he's at home with Graham tonight, but my daughter, KG, she's five, She's here tonight, so she filled in tonight and prayed over me, so we're going to be all right. We're going to be good tonight. Uh, I'm just excited about this word. I actually want to begin, though, in Judges chapter 2, and I'm just going to pull one scripture and just kind of set some things here. Um, So we're going to jump way back before Nehemiah, and Judges chapter 2, verse 10 To me, this is possibly along with John 6, and I think it's John 6 and verse 66, if I remember right. These could be the two saddest verses in all of Scripture. Uh, And I'm going to start with this one, so I promise it'll get better from here. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, that means they had all passed away, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the works which he had done for Israel. A whole generation came up not knowing all the good things God had done. It reminds me, on my, on my mirror at home, I have five scriptures across the mirror in my bathroom, and they're all scriptures on family and generation, that type of things. And one of those scriptures is Isaiah thirty-eight nineteen, and it says, a, a father will tell his sons of your faithfulness. Another one says, I'll declare your faithfulness even to those that aren't born yet. It's, this, it's, a, it's a picture of perpetuating the goodness of God. Now, God doesn't need me to perpetuate his goodness. He is good all by himself. But he calls me into the responsibility of passing the knowledge and the understanding of his goodness from one generation to the next. He's, he's such a generationally minded God. He, he's, he's consumed with, I told Courtney I'm trying to find better words than what I was running by her today. I'm going to use consumed. Today I used obsessed. I don't like calling God obsessed about things. It just sounds negative. God is consumed with the concept and the idea of family. He is, you, you, it's, it's riddled throughout the Bible. Everywhere you look, it's family, it's father. So much so, God refers to himself as a father. And all of us, his children. Family was the goal. God creates man and woman in the garden. A man and a woman. And gives them the ability to reproduce. Because once you reproduce, you become a family. And so God becomes 
uh, driven, <laughs> I'm trying to find really good words for God, driven by this concept of how the family is designed and, and, and intended to be. And in the family as leaders, fathers, parents, aunts, uncles, it becomes our responsibility to perpetuate the knowledge of his goodness to the generation behind us. If you don't tell your kids how good he is, <laughs> come on, man. I mean, we tell them everything else. We, we push them in every other area, and we push them to be good in sports, and we push them to be good in school, and I'm for all that. I do that. Except right now I'm trying to convince my wife not to send my baby girl to school because she's so smart. Does she really need to leave the house? I mean... But you see, you see, we step into this responsibility and the word clearly teaches me that as a father and a leader in my home, it's my responsibility to pass down the knowledge of the goodness of God. So what does that have to do with rebuilding? Colby set me up so well. Tuesday. What about that word Tuesday night? Yeah, yeah. My goodness. I literally have went back and watched it twice since Tuesday night. I, I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment or what it may be, but there is some stuff, and every time it's like I keep mining new little things out of it, and there's, I'm telling you, oh, tell you what, one of these days he's going to be a preacher. <laughs> keep it up, bud. That's where I got my start. That's what Dad always tells me. So, so I wanted to look in this. Colby proposed an incredible question, why are we building set such an incredible foundation and even made a lot of generational remarks throughout it. You can tell I'm starting to rub off on him. And, uh, and so he really set me up for where I want to go tonight and what I want to deal with. And I want to deal with this concept, and I need you, once I throw it out, it's going to be one of those, oh, well, it's going to sound like a lot. But just give me some time here, and we're going to really dig into this deep. But I want to deal with a concept called transgenerational consciousness transgenerational consciousness. I know that sounds like a mouthful, but when I break it down, you're going to understand that it's actually fairly simple. Transgenerational consciousness. Colby asked, why do we build? I believe this will be directly connected to, and it will be another stone that we can use and know this is one of the ways, this is part of what we're building. A transgenerational consciousness, and I'm going to give you my definition of this. I kind of took a couple different ways to see it and approach it and just built a good, solid, I feel like good definition for us tonight. It means to be painfully aware of and sensitive to one's surroundings. That's your consciousness. And when you take it and connect it with a transgenerational consciousness, it's painfully aware of and sensitive to one's surroundings and how it affects or acts across multiple generations. In other words, it's the ability to see what's happening and see the effect or the reaction that it causes across multiple generations, even before me and generations even after me. So when you live with a transgenerational consciousness, you're painfully aware and sensitive to what's happening, and it causes you to respond and react and build and teach in accordance to what it will do for generations. God is a generational God. I, I love to see Him in this, and I promise we're about to get into Nehemiah. I love to see Him in this because if I was to ask you who's the father of our faith, 
all you good Bible students would tell me Abraham. Well, most after we hear the story of Abraham, from then on out, we start getting this phrase from Yahweh, and it's, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he starts creating this picture, this idea for us, that he is a generational God. And I'm overwhelmed with the idea that Abraham called God faithful to his promises when Abraham himself didn't actually receive the promise. Abraham's kids did. He was so generationally minded that he would still call God faithful if at the end of his life he didn't see the fullness of what God said, but his kids would. So in, in the ability to think like this, Abraham wasn't hung up on himself in the moment. He knew he was building generationally. So he said, I'm not just going to do something that does good for me in the moment. I'm going to establish something that not just, not just me, not just Isaac, but even Jacob is going to get to reap. Re, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's going to get to reap the benefits of the promise I had with God. I, I, I want to build something. I, it, this, is the, this is the theme for the revival. I want to build something that Stephen's kids get to reap the benefits of. I don't want to just, I don't want to just pursue explosive moments where we re- feel really good and everybody's jacked up and we're all high on what just happened in the service, but later on it's gone. It's, it's faded. It's, it's, it's done away with. I don't want to know that we spent our entire lives building and we find ourselves in Judges chapter 2 again when a generation comes behind us and they don't even know what God did. They, they, don't even, they don't even know the amazing things he did because we didn't build nothing that lasted until they got here. So I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah comes before the king and he's heartbroken for the condition of, of his city. But I want to pull out a very important phrase that just, in my studies, it just it leapt out at me. And the, he comes before the king, he's sad, and the king's asked, why is your countenance so sad in front of me? Uh, just, you know, it's, it's, it's a possibility if you come before the king sad, he could have you killed. Um, verse 2 says, therefore the king said, why is your face sad? I love that. You're not sick? <laughs> That's just good. I love that. I'm going to start using that. Why is your face sad? You're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Verse 3, and, and Nehemiah said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, notice what comes next, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. I want to approach this a little different. I, I, trust me, I understand the biblical implications of what the city was. Don't get me wrong. But Nehemiah makes it very clear and continues to use this phrase that his heart was for the city because his father was there. It wasn't just the fact it was the place where he lived at one point. There was a generational tie to the place. And he said, I'm sad because the place where my father's buried is wasted. 
It's destroyed. It's, 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 it's been burnt down. So there is an ability in Nehemiah to be moved by the current situation as it relates to the generation before him. And being moved by what happened in the generation, he begins to build something for the generation after him. The gospel is so selfless that in every situation you find, you're usually, if you're doing it according to the gospel, being moved by a past situation or a thing that Jesus did or the generation before you, and you're doing something to prepare it for the next generation. It's never about you. It's never about me. It's the ability. I was reminded of a scripture. Dad pulls this out a lot when we're just uh, coming together and reasoning things and figuring out things. And he uses the scripture. It's a wise scribe that knows how to pull both from the old and from the new. So I want you to think about this generationally. Young guys, if you're a young person in a church right now and you're coming up under a pastor, let me give you some advice in the moment. Don't think that everything you need is new. Don't think that you've got some new idea and new doctrine and new way and everything's cooler now that you're not wise enough to say, but there's some gray-headed people I need to be sitting with and I need to be listening to and I need to be hearing some things. We have to get to the place that we become so generational. And that truth works in both directions. All you gray-headed people, I love you so much. But there's some young people that just love Jesus and they're passionate about some things. So before we cut them off, let us come together and reason and find this truth. Find this transgenerational consciousness that Nehemiah was operating in, that he was so sad. You know why I think he was sad? I think he was sad because every son in a healthy relationship, looks to and wants to see their father be just as successful. They want to see what their father's done be established and promoted and grown. And here's Nehemiah looking back to where his father was, and it's burnt down, and it's destroyed. So when I was getting ready for this, and I was preparing and just thinking, I begin to think about, uh, I begin to think about a Billy Graham or a Reinhardt Bonnke or these guys that gave their lives to see something happen in America, and now they've passed away. And will we allow it to become burnt down and destroyed, and then their lives would be, uh, I don't want to say they were for nothing, but what they built doesn't get to go on? Are we not moved? by the Leonard Ravenhills and the Smith Wigglesworths that came before us and the things they gave their life for are in heaps right now because no one came under them and said, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to serve your ministry and your idea and your doctrine. And when somebody comes up under somebody like that, there's a, uh, what's his name, Colby, you told him today, yesterday, Daniel, Daniel Kalinda who served uh, Reinhardt Bonnke so well. He came in and said, I'm not looking to change your ministry or tell you what you need to do with it. I'm here to serve a man of God. And because of it, when Reinhardt Bonnke started phasing out and moving into his time to go be with the Lord, there was a young man who had been prepared and ready with a generational mindset who wasn't complaining about the way the old heads did it. He was prepared and ready to step into a generational calling and carry a mantle 
that would build something that if you're paying attention, Daniel's now hosting conferences where millions are being swept into the kingdom. Transgenerational consciousness. He knew (laughs) this is a father and I need to be very aware of what's happening in this father so that I'm ready to continue with what this father's building. Nehemiah said, the place where my father's tomb is destroyed, why would I not be sad? Why would I not be sad? The story of Nehemiah is incredible and what he pulls off. I love the fact that Nehemiah convinces a wicked king to not only give him permission to go do what he's going to do, but to be the fund and the backing to pull it off. (laughs) Oh, man. Can I tell you, God doesn't need a born-again, spirit-filled president or a king or a governor. He doesn't have to have those things to accomplish what he's after. So if your hope for America is for Mother Teresa to win office, you need to be very careful because Nehemiah didn't tell the king, you need to get saved so I can go rebuild. No, he said, even where you're at right now, I'm just going to take your resources and I'm going to go build the kingdom. And the king backed him in it. The king signed the letters and told the people over his forests, if Nehemiah shows up and needs some trees, cut them down and give them to him. So he can go build a kingdom that's not mine. Just, I'm just going to leave that for you because we don't have time tonight. It's so funny because God is, a, God is just, I, I, I'm a, I'm, I love the idea of the providence of God. The providence of God is the, inner, the supernatural inner workings of God in our everyday life, setting things up, putting things in order. And if you're aware of it, you find yourself in a lot more divine situations than you knew you were a part of because God's setting them up. And it's an incredible thing. So today I was here just working around the church and I would come in here and pray and just going over my stuff. And I was in this transgenerational consciousness theme of thought and the generations after us. And I walked in to do some work in the men's bathroom. And on the back of one of the toilets, there was a little purple motorcycle. And I'm just like, this geeks me up. I've, I've been in the, my office and found dinosaurs in the bookshelf. I've, now I've found motorcycles on the toilets. I found, and it was like God was just doing these little things and showing me the generational consciousness of this house. This house is so generationally conscious that, that a few weeks ago we took almost 40 kids to a cabin in the middle of the woods and watched God just pour his love out on them like no other. This church is so generationally conscious that by taking a step of faith, hired on a full-time youth pastor, I'm just, I'm telling you guys, you don't understand the implications of what happens when you invest into a generational mindset. So a church not running quite enough people to actually pull off staffing this many people said, we so believe in the next generation, we're going to pay a full salary for someone who will just invest into youth, just invest into kids. And I believe we're reaping the benefits of a church that becomes generationally minded. So I want to show you Nehemiah's genius plan to rebuild the wall. In chapter 4, 
Let's start in about verse uh, 5. No. Where are we going to start? 7. Nehemiah 4 and 7 says, Now it happened when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites and the Cellulites and all them, heard, some of y'all got that, some of y'all didn't, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create, say it, confusion. Oh, your, yours may say something different. I love the next statement. So they had a plan to attack and create fusion. And number nine, it says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Something came and attacked and caused so much confusion. And he said, nevertheless, we just prayed. And because of them, we set watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is much rubbish and there is no way we are able to build the wall. Wow, thanks for the encouraging word there, Judah. And then our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was. When the Jews who dwelt near came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Let me explain that for kind of so you can understand what the wording means. What he's saying is, in our language, I would have said, anywhere you turn your back on the wall, they're going to be ready to attack that place. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if you neglect one area, they're coming in that area. In other words, the enemy has so surrounded you. <laughs> let, me, let me encourage you a little bit. You're so surrounded by the enemy <laughs> that they're watching every area. And whichever area you neglect, that's the area they're going to attack. So take that personally. Now listen to Nehemiah. I love this guy. Therefore, I, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. Here's where we're going to hang our hat tonight. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them, but remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your family and your house. Yours probably says, and fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah said, I put you with your family. Now don't be afraid of what they're saying, and you fight for your family. You fight for your house. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God brought their plot to nothing. <laughs> I love that. That all of us just went back to work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked with construction and the other with a sword. And then he goes on, and this is where we get the famous saying that they had a sword in one hand, a hammer in the other, and they begin to go to work. This was the genius of Nehemiah to complete the building that God had called him to do. He said, the way we're going to finish this is I'm going to put you over your own family. I'm going to have you with your family building this part of the wall. This is why every single family is so important. 
every single family. Because remember, right before that, they said if one part of the wall gets neglected, they're going to attack it. So when one family begins to neglect their part of the wall, the attack comes into that part. And Nehemiah comes up with this genius idea because in reality, if, if it's healthy, no one's going to fight for my family like I will. I mean, no one is going to fight for my family like I will. So Nehemiah thought, if I want them to fight with everything inside of them, I'm going to put them over their own family. Me and the kids were watching a movie the other night, having a little family movie night, me and the kids and Courtney. And in the movie, a man slaps a little boy, just disrespects him and just slaps him, and the dad is just standing there and doesn't say a word and doesn't do nothing. And Stephen kind of looked at me, and I looked at Stephen, and I told Stephen, I said, I can tell you right now, bud, I love Jesus. But if somebody slaps you like that, you will be the last person they slap like that. <laughs> I even said, I'll kill him. And KG goes, you'll do what? And Courtney was like, you mean you would hurt him? Courtney's trying to save him. KG goes, oh, you mean you make them pass out? I said, yeah, that's what I do. I make them pass out, baby. Put them in that chokehold. They pass out. But Nehemiah comes up with this design, and he begins, to, he begins to put them in place of protecting their own families. Now, I want us to look at this at several different levels. Your family is the group of people whom you live in a home with. You may not all be relatives, but you live together. That is your family. Now, this church group here is a family. There is the family of God that covers the entire planet. God knew what he was doing when he started setting us up in families, and Nehemiah knew what he was doing when he called them over their own families. And guess what? They had been trying to re These walls had been in ruins for a hundred and, what is it, 70 years? And they'd been trying to rebuild them for 70-something years at this point and could never get it accomplished. And Nehemiah shows up, establishes something built on healthy families and does it in 52 days. Can I tell you that a healthy family would heal most of what America's convulsing over? A healthy family would deal with most of the situations we have to counsel out of kids. A healthy family would heal most of the situations that we deal with with our prisons being overflowing. And the situation that we found, the answer would be a family and leaders who are fighting over that family. And Nehemiah said, if I can get you to fight for your family, there's nothing I can't come up with. There's nothing too hard. There's nothing too big. If you fight for your family, he said, we'll accomplish this. We'll, 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 we'll do this. I found an incredible quote by Mother Teresa. It just feels good when you use quotes by her, right? I don't know what it is. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. I love this. I love this. I was privileged uh, and honored to grow up in a healthy family. I grew up in a very healthy home. I grew up seeing the balance of pursuing God and, and putting Him over everything in your life and still being able to raise a healthy family and invest into your children. Because if we're honest, for a long time, that was never the, that, there was never a balance there in most ministries. You hear of a lot of ministries, ministers who lose their family and they call it the sacrifice of going after God. But in my mind, if God created family, He would never ruin it for you to do what He called you to. You ruined it in the name of doing what He called you to do. So, so in my mind, 
and I guess I'm just going to, I'm going to blame dad for this. He set the bar high. In my mind, you can be an incredible minister, but if your family is not healthy and it doesn't, then you missed it. You, yeah, you were the man of power for the hour and you probably had some good services, but your kids aren't building on. They have nothing to build on what you established. So when, so when you begin to understand the importance of how this operates and how this works, if we're looking to build, because that's what we're talking about right now, and as Colby said, build something that's going to last and we don't have to keep rebuilding it, we're going to have to build it on the concept of family. We're going to have to build it on the idea that you fight for your family and I'm going to fight for my family and then let's take that out a little bit and I'm going to fight for this family. You feel me? And then this family is going to fight for the bigger family of America and the American church family is going to fight for the world church family. And when you begin to see it on this level, it begins to create something in us and we begin to not just build stuff. Now we build stuff and we whip the enemy. Now we whip the enemy and we build stuff. For too long, you could only be one, you could only have a sword or you could only have a hammer. You can't have both. You can't have both. God said, no, 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 I'm raising up a family who can hold both. I'm raising up a family. Dad, y'all remember dad taught the message of being ambidextrous. I'm raising up a family that can use both hands. I don't just want you to whip the devil. I want you to raise healthy kids. I'm not going to sacrifice the health of my children and call it. I was just doing what God called me to do. God called me to raise healthy family. God calls me to raise healthy children. This is what it's about. It's a transgenerational consciousness. I don't care how many followers you get on a social media page. If your kids aren't following you, you lose. Abraham said, if I don't build something that blesses generations after me, I didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. But we just want to build big ministries and get big followings and, and, and everybody be right now because we're, hot, we're a hot item right now. So let's, let's strike while the iron's hot and let's make it big and our homes are falling down. Nehemiah had the ability to be moved looking back to a generation that he wanted to honor. And in his desire to honor the generation before him, he built something that would protect the generation after him. Come on. In desiring to honor the ones before him, he built something that would protect the ones after him. God's design was to set this up like a family, and we see it in Romans 8 and 15, where it says, Now we have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've been called into this family and we've been called for such a time as this. We've been called to learn how to operate in healthy families and, 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 and build in such a way that it creates something that's so generational that keeps moving on beyond us. And in the study of this, God began to show me personally just kind of the way it's, it's been working for us here and just what we've been in pursuit of and what we've been after and what's been happening. And me and Colby were just kicking it back and forth in the truck, uh, I think between going to jobs or bids or something. And, and we just begin to get a language 
for where we're at and, and the way it's been happening. I, I couldn't wait. I went down to mom and dad's today. I was just sharing with them. I just couldn't wait to share this. And I began to see something. Uh, for a long time, I felt like I was frustrated, and I even told dad this. I felt like I was frustrated because dad would never write down, this is, this is our mission statement. This is our vision. You know what I mean? He's, he's just never been the type. He's very much a, you'll learn it by watching me. And used to, you can ask him, I've, I've, we've even talked about this, used to it was frustrating. I wanted him to write down, A, B, C, D, do this, 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 and this is what we have. And, this is, and, 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 and God began to show us some things and reveal to us the, the fact that it wasn't his responsibility. And so what he did was he lived a lifestyle that reflected the vision of this house. In other words, the vision of this house is the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the product, I hate that word, but that's what I'm going to use, uh, is the fruit of the lifestyle that was lived by a father in a house. And because he was willing to live it consistently, it gave us, some of us young guys coming up, permission as sons to begin to put language, which is doctrine, we begin to put language and doctrine to the lifestyle of the Father. I need y'all to hear me. Listen to me. If you're watching online, pastors, you guys that are under pastors right now, listen to this. We begin to get language and doctrine for a lifestyle that we were seeing lived in the Father. And when the second generation gets language and doctrine, we get permission to pass down a blueprint. So guess what? 25 years from now, Life Church won't be going through some hectic transition with a new father and a new vision and a new plan and a new idea. Every five years we change and we do something else because someone else is in the house. No, what happens is when a father is in a house and thinks generationally, he raises up sons and the sons get language and then the sons pass down to the next son's blueprint for the lifestyle that was intended to be lived in the kingdom. Can I speak to some of the sons in here and that are listening online right now? It is not the father of the house's responsibility to put the language together for you. Jesus said, I'm going here. I asked dad, I wasn't sure about this today, but I'm going here. I feel this in my spirit. Jesus said, I'm just doing what I see the father do. And in his willingness to do what the Father was doing and initiate the lifestyle, the disciples got to create language and doctrine. And so we don't come along and change the language of the doctrine. We use it as a blueprint to build the kingdom that Jesus was designed to, to, to manifest, to demonstrate by his lifestyle. So young minister, young son that's coming up, young daughter that's coming up, you don't get to pick a new one. You don't get to pick a new doctrine and a new style and a new idea. You get to put language to what the father of the house has established. And when we get family right we build right and when we build right we don't have to build again it's generational it has to be a lifestyle and the lifestyle gives permission to a language and the language creates a blueprint 
And when they have the blueprint, they're not running around asking, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? We don't know how to do the church. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to do family. We don't know how to do community. We don't know how to do all these things. No, there's been something passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And on the, on the idea, the concept of healthy families, he, he expedites what couldn't be done in 70-something years. He expedites it, and in healthy family does it in 52 days. 52 days. Why? Because it was healthy family. Can I tell you, we, we have such a responsibility to fight for family. On, on so many levels. I've said it multiple times in the pulpit, the strongest conviction in my life is how I raise my kids. It's the strongest conviction in my life as far as, as it relates to how I will be judged by God. I'm... I'm telling you, if I get nothing else right, I want to stand before God and say, I raised them the way you wanted me to. I, I, I found the bend that you put in them, and I just cultivated it until they became the person that you designed them to be. Not who I thought they should become. So sometimes I'm tired and I don't feel like it, but there's a conviction in me that says, are you really going to go lay down tonight when you haven't spoken into them? You haven't prayed with them? You haven't done anything with them? And you're just going to lay down tonight like nothing's happened, like nothing's going on, and you're supposed to be molding them? into God said, I trusted you with that? Oh, but you're tired. These are some of the strongest convictions I live with. And it drives me, I'm telling you, it drives me. It drives me to spend time in prayer for my kids. I was so, <laughs> I was so excited because about two weeks ago, God finally gave me my prophetic word for Benjamin. I knew it was coming. I had prophetic words for Stephen, and I had a prophetic word as their father for Kennedy. And I was praying, and I was seeking, and I was standing right there by that door, and he began to speak to me about my son. He began to speak to me, and I was overwhelmed with a gratefulness and a, a painfully aware of a responsibility. I started with transgenerational consciousness means to be painfully aware and sensitive to one's surroundings. I became painfully aware that all of a sudden I have the responsibility to cultivate a word that God gave me for my kid. God gave me a word for my kids. And there's no ministerial clout worth sacrificing what he's given me with my kids. I've been put in positions where by God's word and what he told me, I had to make some sacrifices and, and as it relates to my family. 
But in no way, form, or fashion would God ever, ever, ever hurt, destroy, harm, tear apart your family for the sake of the ministry. It is, that is the biggest lie from the enemy. I want to I throw this out and we're, and we're going to wrap this up. This incredible conviction I have for, for kids comes from Jesus taking a child. <laughs> takes a child and sits it on his knee and makes a bold statement. And Jesus said, if you keep this child from coming to me, if you cause this child to stumble, he says, it would be better that you were drowned in a river. He said, it would be better if they tied a millstone around your neck and threw you in the river. This is Jesus, y'all. Jesus. And I can just see him sitting there with a child that was probably coming up in some terrible, terrible conditions and his heart just going out to these children and saying, if you cause one of them to stumble from me, it would be better if you were drowned in a river. This is the same Jesus that when they rejected him personally, on levels we can't wrap our minds around, the dis- it was such a harsh rejection that the disciples said, do you want us to call down fire and annihilate this city? Don't, don't think the disciples were just quick to kill people. No, the rejection the response matched the rejection. The rejection was so severe, they thought, we just need to wipe this city out. And Jesus said, no, you don't know what spirit you are. I've come that they may have life. And yet he makes a statement that if you cause this child to stumble, it would be better. This is, this is monumental. Monumental. So God is desiring for us as we build this kingdom to build it in the concept of a healthy family. If Nehemiah is the blueprint for what it's going to look like, you will not build this kingdom outside of healthy families. He he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Read the story. Not only could he not do it, but when he did it on healthy families, it was expedited. Most of what we've worked really hard to try to come up with would come quickly if we had healthy family. This is the last point, and I'm closing with this scripture. Nehemiah 4 and 20. I love this. After the scriptures I just read, the enemy realizes what's going on, and they kind of pull back for a minute. Well, when they pull back, Nehemiah comes up with an incredible idea, and he sits out trumpeteers every so often around the wall. He spreads them way out. And in 4 and 20, he says, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and God will fight for us. (laughs) I love this. He says, whenever you hear someone's in trouble, everybody rally to that point. And when all of us get there, God will fight. In other words, when you rally to save someone else in the family, God gets involved. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have somebody take my back, have my back, I want it to be God. If I'm going to have someone, if I'm going to tag somebody in, (laughs) I want it to be God. Because last I checked, he hasn't lost yet. 
Last I checked, when he speaks, things happen. So next, so what we have to understand is what does healthy family look like? Healthy family looks like when your trumpet goes off, we all come running in. And we all rally together. And when we rally together, God says, now that I can get behind. And he shows up and begins to do things we couldn't do. So you may be asking, well, how did they continue? How did they actually fight with one hand and build with the other? Because they did it together and God showed up and fought with them. Because they rallied together and God showed up and fought with them. Can I, can, I, can I make this bold statement in closing? Literally, I'm closing. Look, I'm closing my Bible. Kind of. Can I make this bold statement? How can we expect, to God, to sh- expect God to show up and fight on a large scale when he can't even find two separate churches that will rally together? Aren't we families? And aren't we all families in his family? And he's looking down saying, I can't get two families to rally together and you expect me to get behind this? You expect me to rush in and help you out when I can't even get you to come together because you see things a little different than they see things? So it's got you separated. And you may hear the trumpet blowing, but even though their trumpet's blowing in distress, you're saying, yeah, but they don't think like I think and they don't do it like I do it and they don't worship like I worship and they believe they see the end things a little different so we can't come together. So because we're not rallying, God's saying, I can't get involved. I can't get involved because y'all are not rallying together. You've heard the trumpet blow and you've heard the sound of distress. If nothing else, the sound of distress is the situation and the current conditions of our own communities. And our churches sit on our divided sections of the wall saying, that's your part of the community, why don't you deal with it? That's your thing. You, you're, you're the one that deals with the, the kids. You're, you're the one that does that. You do that. You're the, one that does, you're the one that does the rehab. You, you handle that. What happened to when I hear the trumpet blow, we all just come together because we're all in the same family. And Nehemiah teaches us that when we all come together and we rally as one, God begins to fight for us. We are crazy if we think we're going to win this battle without God fighting. Our community programs... And our self-help books are not going to turn this around. It's healthy family. It's healthy family. Can I tell you, I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for my family. My wife is fighting for my family. When situations come into our house that we don't feel right and you can feel that negative spirit, my wife's walking through that house praying and declaring the goodness of God over that. When stupid little toys come in, we were just talking about this today, and you think it's nothing, but then we start reading the backstory on a stupid toy, and the toy is designed to be a ghost that possesses you and takes over you and begins to do what he wants, and it's toys, and we're just letting them in our house. And my wife found out today and she said, no, not in my house. <laughs> no, not, no, we're not opening none of those doors in my house because I'm going to fight for my family. I'm not going to open any stupid doors for an ignorant devil to come into my house and plague my children. You can call. You can tell me I've got them in a bubble. You can tell me I'm not letting them experience life. I don't really care what anyone else thinks because I'm called to fight for my family. 
And when God gives me a prophetic word over my son that he would spend all of his days in the house of the Lord and he would never have to sow a bad seed, then I'm going to do everything I can to steward a word that helps him protect that seed and protect who he is. Even if culture says it's too much, I want this. I want this. And when I stand before God, I will stand, me and my wife, with a clear conscience and say, I fought for my family. I fought for them. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you that you're not just looking to build ministerial clout and you're not just looking to, to, to make ministry famous and to get lots of Instagram followers. God, but you're looking for someone that would step back and build a family, someone that would step back and go after something healthy, something whole, something complete, Father. I thank you that you're giving us the design, the blueprint, the way to do it. So, Father, help us, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to stick to your way. Help us to raise up healthy families, individual families that then make healthy church families, and healthy church families make healthy community families. God, we want to build, but we want to build in your design, in your way, so that we don't have to rebuild again. Right now, my heart, I just feel something for sons right now. When I say sons, I'm telling you, sons and daughters... We, it's our responsibility as the sons and daughters of houses to begin to follow our leaders in such a way that God begins to give us language for their lifestyle. And in giving us that language, it's going to begin to create blueprints. Stop needing it to be your way. Stop needing it to be new. Stop needing it to be cutting edge. Stop needing it to be tech savvy or whatever your hang up is. And start remembering there was two things. He said when it got, when it got confusing, we prayed and we set up in healthy families. Serve your leader. Honor your leader. Come up under them and serve them like you never have before. I'm saying this to all of you, to me, Colby, Scott, every young person in this room, Branson, us that are coming up, serve the vision. Serve the vision. Serve the Father. Serve the Father. I feel that in my spirit tonight. He's about to raise up sons and daughters who are going to serve well. And in serving well, we're going to see things change. We're going to see things change. Father, I thank you for it tonight. I bless everyone in this room. I bless those that are watching online right now that you begin to stir up our spirits back to a place of prayer and health. Prayer and healthy families, oh God. Bring us back, oh Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org.